Hello and welcome to the DOS Game Club podcast, episode number 32, in which we've played Knights of the Sky, developed by Microprose, released in 1990. It's a World War I flight simulator. So uh, that's that's an interesting game, I think. I'm Tijn, Tijn uh, on the forums, Martijn, uh, and I'm, of course, not going to talk about this game alone at all. As usual, with me here is our co-host, Florian. Hey. Hey, hey. Cool to have you back. Indeed. We're back... Uh, <laughs> Back in business. <laughs> yes, finally, after some summer pause. Yeah, it's always a bit messy with the summer and people on holiday and well. But we're, we're back on track now. Although, actually, are you going on holiday? Yeah, in September. <laughs> ah, okay, so then... Enough time yeah. to catch up. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and also joining us is a new member, actually. It's uh, on the forums. He's called Evil Commie Dictator, but in, uh, in we'll, we'll just call him David. It seems more appropriate. So Hi, David. <laughs> hello, hello. Hey, it's really cool to have you, David. No, thank you very much for having me. I was quite chuffed when uh, you guys said you were going to play Knights of the Sky, so I'm happy to be on board. Yeah, because... Uh, well, well, we'll talk about this uh, in in a little bit, but you're the one who actually suggested the game, didn't you? That's right. I remember, I think I got uh, referred to DOS Games Club by, and it's all by DOS Nostalgic on Twitter, I think, and um, ah. I was very tempted just to go through and just start listing games. And I think I, I did a few games mm. uh, up there and... Uh, one of mine was picked, and I'm, I'm yeah. pretty excited to go on there. So yes, that's that's awesome, and it's yeah, it's perfect that you that you also wanted to join because then you can tell us you know all about it. So uh, yeah, that's that's perfect. Hmm. Uh, uh, maybe we should just do exactly that. <laughs> just talking about this you suggested the game david yes so it goes back sort of um to when i was a younger fellow my my dad was a big uh, board game strategy game fellow and growing up when he did war was a big part of uh his life and uh that led into the board games and the video games so when i was young i could definitely sit down and watch him uh you know play gunship and play silent service and microprose games were a big part of that so things like pirates I remember him playing, and Knights of the Sky. So then when I fast forward into being a teenager, I've got a 386 in my room. Nice. Uh, what, what better to uh, to launch up one of these games and, and muck around a bit? And uh, that's where Knights of the Sky comes in as a, a fairly straightforward flying game. I always wanted to fly. Uh, that's kind of an expensive hobby as it turns out. <laughs> so uh, on the computer is a lot easier to do definitely. and a lot safer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
That's that's awesome. So so you played this game. Well, your dad. It sounds like he got it when it came out, or or around that time, anyway. Would have been relatively close at the time, yeah. And uh, in, in our big fancy computers back then, uh, on actual hardware as opposed to DOSBox, uh, mm. with the IBM PC beeps going off, it's uh, <laughs> very very comforting and familiar. Cool, that's very nice. I actually, this game it's from uh, nineteen ninety. It's I I don't think the the system requirements are that hefty because it's it's relatively old, really. I mean. Yeah, it's uh for for the game that it is. I mean, it's it's quite impressive 3D flying simulator and everything. That for what for what it does, it's quite straightforward. It only required 640k of RAM. Um I think it yeah. came on maybe two or three three and a half inch floppies. Hmm. So at at the end of the day, the specifications that it needed weren't that dramatic and whilst it's not the uh the prettiest game, it's doing something at the time, in 1990, which is quite exciting, which is actually have a 3D environment with 3D rendered objects in it. Yeah. Actual polygons. Exactly, yeah. That's that's phenomenal, really. So did you also have the box and everything? I did have – I don't have the box anymore. I, I had a look in my uh, pile of things to see if I had the manual, but I don't have the manual anymore. I think that might be at home somewhere, but uh, – right. Obviously, the manual is still available online, and I still needed it to uh, bypass the copy protection. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, even uh, we'll, we'll talk about this later. But even if you get the game on on Steam or GOG or anything like that, the um, the copy protection is still in there. Well, but it's disabled, isn't it? Is it? Is well, it? I, I never, I never, lo- I never looked up any of the of the stuff in the copy protection, and it just worked. Oh, so I assume it's disabled. Okay, I... <laughs> or I got some, or I got some backlash from that that I didn't realize. But no, no. You <laughs> see, uh, I, I think you've got a very naughty copy there because I, th- I believe oh, yeah. uh, the one on Steam still has the copy protection. No, I, I bought it. I actually bought it on GOG, so mm. I'm pretty sure it is a legit copy. <laughs> okay. Well, I was surprised that it even presents you with the screen at all because no, it's, it's harder to patch out, I guess. Yeah, if you don't have the sources. I suppose, I suppose. Bypassing the, the test is probably just changing one byte in the binary. Yeah. Removing the screen screen altogether is a big, much, much bigger job. Mm, yeah. So, uh, so you, yeah, you probably played this a ton, didn't you, David? That's right, yeah. So I, I, at the time when I first played it, I played it with the keyboard. It's, I don't really recommend playing it with the mouse. Mouse controls in flying games tend not to work too well. Mm. But I, I had the ability here to play it with both my joystick and a controller. Um, I end up playing with a controller just for simplicity, I think. And you mean uh, you mean like a D-pad kind of thing? Oh, with yeah, with uh, an equivalent Xbox controller essentially. Right. So I had uh, an actual stick ah. to fly around with. Yeah, because flight sims are really yeah. You want that joystick kind of thing, don't you? To get the intermediate movement that you can't get with uh, the arrow keys is is really quite useful. Um, I had problems too with uh, the arrow keys here, and that there was. Um, I couldn't get repeated key movements. I had to mash keys to get it in there. If um, the handful of people who watched me on on Twitch play this out from scratch and saw me frustrated for about 45 minutes trying to work out why I had to mash keys all the time was... uh, It would have been would have been very amusing, I'm sure, from their point of view, but I just... I assume it's uh, some sort of... uh, interrupt thing that, that Windows now does that DOS didn't do back in the day with key presses. Well, it's not worked well in DOSBox. Probably, yeah. Mm. But uh, but as a kid also, I mean, did you did you play through the whole campaign, stuff like that? 
I would have played on a lot lower difficulty than I did now. Um, mm. I did get through and have a retired pilot. It actually was, amusingly enough, I still have that copy in my uh, on my story on my drive here, and I actually saw my old pilot. Oh wow! With a ridiculous amount of kills and a ridiculous amount of time played, <laughs> and uh, that that was a bit of a shock. But uh, that's quite nice. That's awesome, though. Yes. So. Florian, yes. have you ever played this before? No, I hadn't even heard about it before we uh, picked it as our game of the month. Yeah. I, I played the, the other game that stole its name, though. You mean uh, Red Baron? Red Baron, yes. Right. I played that a bit at, on a friend's computer, as I usually did with all my games I played as a kid. Mm, right. Because, well, actually, I, you had a 286, didn't you? Yeah, but I didn't have many games and I didn't have a source for games. So yeah. mm, right. that's why I, why I ended up programming all of the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's a good reason. Uh, probably would have ran on the 286, though, I think. But... Oh, yeah, it would have run perfectly fine because I ran it on my 286 now. Hmm. Excellent. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. It worked, worked pretty well, yes. Well, that's impressive for the whole 3D thing that it... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's cool. It's it's really the same here. I had never heard of this game either. Uh, although I must admit, I'm not a big flight sim or, well, any kind of simulation battle combat thing. I mean, micro. You, you mentioned this already that Microprose released a lot of games where you control either a submarine or a tank or a plane or, well, things to wage war with. But I never really played any of those, and I wasn't really into it. So. I think you need the appropriate influence for that sort of thing. Yeah, um, maybe. For me, I, I play a lot of strategy games, so there are some of those that fit definitely into that niche. Mm. But but really, yeah, it's kind of a sort of an old an older audience, a generation older than me, who these games were aimed at. Yeah, at the time. Yeah, I think so too, because a lot of these microprose games are actually from the eighties as well. Not everything. There's there's definitely also some from the nineties, but. For some reason, I feel this is more like an 80s genre. Oh, no, it, it's not. It, it's not? There are many 90s flight simulators and battle simulators. Yeah, it did continue, but it originated in the 80s. And I feel that it was... Oh, yeah, that, that, that absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel it was just hugely important in the 80s, too. I, I oh. think all the, the Jane's combat simulations, didn't they start in the 90s? Hmm, I, I don't know. And later, I think, yeah, going up into World War II simulators in the, in the early 2000s, I think. Yeah, it never really stopped, did it? Oh, yeah, the uh, first Jane's Combat game is from 96, so... Hmm, okay. But either way, I I wasn't really into these kind of games, so I I didn't really play any. Although I did play um, another microprose title called Dogfight, which is a little later. I think it's from 93, something like that. Don't know why I had it, but I I played that a ton as a kid. Uh, for some reason, and it's it's essentially same-ish. Um, Dogfight has planes from all eras, so it starts with all the World War One, World War Two stuff, but it it evolves all the way to jet fighters and everything. And yeah, it's just dogfights. You can just pick a plane and pick an enemy, and then I think you can even uh, choose which planes you're fighting and which you have yourself. So you can you can totally have a jet and then try to shoot down a triplane or something. So. That seems very fair. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Easy mode. Yeah, totally. And then <laughs> launch your rockets at them while they only have this tiny machine gun. But uh, yeah, I only really played that. That's the only flight simulator I ever really played. So uh, 
There are other games, though. Uh, you already mentioned Red Baron, which uh, we'll talk more in a bit about, I think, because, well, there's some there's some overlap with this game, isn't there? That's right, but I think that means me and Florian now have to go have an argument out the back ah. to see who's the best, I think, yeah, <laughs> between Red Baron and Knights of the Sky because they both came out around the same time and are very, very similar. Yeah. Well, uh, to, to be honest, I, I don't have many memories of Red Baron, so I just remember I wasn't really good at it as a kid. I don't think I understood Fly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, maybe we should explain the game a little bit to people who, who might not have played any of these games. Although it is quite straightforward, as you said, David. So, I think explaining this game is not very difficult, is it? Well, there's there's not a huge amount of things to do apart from do the campaign, really. It gives you a sort of a training mode where it just will put you at an airfield and you'll fly around a bit without any sort of aim um, you can do a single dogfight against an enemy ace. So you can go and pick a historically accurate ace with their historically accurate plane, uh, pick your plane, go and try and, and shoot them down in a honourable duel, uh, <laughs> as romantically everyone thinks about World War One flying. Yeah. Um, there is also multiplayer, so there was a you, you can play over null modem. That's really cool. Against your friends, yeah. Um, but the main the main focus is the campaign, a World War One campaign. So you can there fly as either a British or French pilot only. Um, that doesn't affect anything. Uh, if you're British, you get the British medals first. If you're French, you get the French medals first. Um, it doesn't mention the Royal Flying Corps or let, let, let me murder some French for you. The 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 Army de l'Air. Oh, I think that sounds pretty good. Is that close? <laughs> I just said, I'm just a humble Australian, mate. I've got no idea of this French stuff. But uh, but you said it doesn't make a difference. But but surely if you play with the Brits, you fly the British planes, or or don't you? No, you can pick entirely any plane you want to oh. uh, to fly at any airbase. The game makes no distinction. That's interesting. I think they, they they flying the planes that were appropriate to the country would have probably locked down the the game a lot more. Yeah. And so in the notes at the back of the manual there, so the reason why they don't have Germany as a playable, uh, you, you can't be a German pilot, is because uh, of size constraints, basically, they were saying. And that if they had to, if they had German, if you could fly as a Germans, then you, they would have had to go and write in all of the Allied aces into the game. Hmm. And they quite possibly didn't have space for that. Okay. So um, if, you would, if you would be able to fly more British and French planes, and they would have had to, uh, if you were locked into British and French planes, you would have had to then have more of those planes in the game to fly, I think. Yeah. Because particularly early in the war, you're sort of only flying one, one type of plane. Right. For, for, that, for that faction. Yeah. And on a, on a more basic level of explaining the game, it's... It's basically, it's all first person, isn't it? Or, or are there other cameras as well? Oh, no, you can change the camera perspective. Right. And you can actually fly it from other perspectives as well. Yeah, though I don't think that makes a lot of sense. No, <laughs> At exactly. least I, I cannot fly the plane at all, at all when it's in any of those third person cameras. Yeah, exactly. So, Well, the, the, the manual says you should do that to practice your maneuvers. But for me, that didn't work at all because <laughs> you get no sense of distance or anything. Yeah, that seems really difficult. So it's mostly first person. You're in the cockpit. You have this old plane around you and it's all it's all 3D flight sim. And you have uh, basically just um, the single machine gun in front of you. 
I think some planes have dual guns as well, but yeah. they try and try and be historically accurate. Yeah, so the planes will have guns in the positions they were supposed to be, hmm. and you'll notice. I think the early French airplane has a machine gun mounted on the top wing because they hadn't quite worked out yet how to fire bullets through the uh, the propeller. That seems important to get that right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, amusingly enough, um, early on they tried making the propeller with the metal edges. Okay. With the metal backing onto it, so the bullets would hit the metal and and would just bounce off. Right. But uh, as it turns out, losing half of your bullets to the propeller is not a particularly good idea. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not a very good strategy. But the the game also simulates multiple types of machine guns that have different properties, like they lock up or or jam uh, in different situations and new modern, uh, more modern uh, machine guns, they jam less. And so I think that that's that's a pretty nice addition for such a game. Yeah. You have to end up mashing the U key a lot (laughs) when you're in the middle of a dogfight. It's very distracting. (laughs) Right. But that that makes it, I don't know. I I like that feature, actually. Because um, I don't know if that's true, but the manual says you can actually influence how often your machine guns lock up because some of them usually only lock up when you're uh, not flying, flying straight or if you're above a certain angle or something. So I don't know if that actually makes a difference, but the manual says it does. Hmm. I, I wanted to say maybe we can get a, a pilot or on Twitter or something to comment, but I'm not sure if there are any actually World War One pilots left. <laughs> Probably <too>. not. <laughs> no, it seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Yeah. So once you've picked your pilot and your mm-hmm. plane and your uh, home base, then you'll be presented a, a mission, basically. And being a microprose game, Sid Meier's behind there, the missions are randomly generated. It gives you a, a dynamic experience when you play it. That's nice. So you can pick between, uh, you, you get chosen things between like going over the enemy lines to shoot down an observation balloon. You can go and do a patrol to watch out for enemy aircraft. You can escort your own reconnaissance aircraft on a mission across the lines. You can be told to do a ground attack against an enemy base or an enemy uh, supply route. Mm-hmm. Or you can be told by your mechanic in the in the scenes there that your air base is under attack and you have to run into your plane quickly and defend the base. Awesome. And the um, the ground stuff, does that also involve dropping bombs and stuff like that? Or is it all just focused on the machine guns? So you, there is uh, bomb dropping in the game. However, I wouldn't try doing that intentionally. It is quite difficult and uh, requires a bit of trial and effort. It's just much easier just to fire your guns at the large po- polygonal trucks and tents and things. Right. Oh, I, I didn't think dropping bombs was that difficult, to be honest. Wow. Um, I mean, I only used used them against um, air bases and the hangars and stuff, but I thought they were relatively easy to hit. Oh, okay, excellent. Well, uh, but I guess against software targets like like uh, trucks that might be overkill and they are smaller, I assume. So, yeah, for, they're good against buildings. It's lining it up is tough, and um, I think you have to go in the appropriate view. If you go, if you press F three, it'll go into the bomb dropping view, which makes things a bit easier. But uh, I always found it easier just to strafe and just. Empty the machine gun on everything. The, the effect is the same at the end of the day for the game. The game doesn't care. Yeah. And do you have a, a limited ammo as well? Yes. Yeah, so on your on your uh, cockpit view, you'll have all of your flight gauges, you'll have your fuel indicator, and you have your ammo gauge as well. Uh, 500 rounds, I think, normally you had right. in each flight. So, yeah, you, you have to be careful a little bit. It's rather awkward to get into a dogfight with three enemy planes and then realize you don't have any bullets left. You have to quickly <laughs> rush out of there. Yeah. Though it also made for, for some very interesting gameplay um, occasionally when I had like like 80 bullets left and I, I knew if I just 
was uh, patient enough. I could uh, kill three more enemies with that. And every once in a while that worked, and then I felt like a real World War One flying ace. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, isn't it? I mean, there, there's this cool kind of vibe to the game. I think the what you said about the gun jamming adds to this, but also stuff like the news that flies in with the where you, you get updates on other aces and stuff like that. Yeah, it sort of makes it feel more like you're really in that situation or something. I don't know. It's uh, I think it's it's really nice. It's not so distant it's not so just yeah it's like you're really part of this event yeah i feel it's less anonymous maybe yeah like um, we, we played strike commander where you actually have a name and everything but uh, I, that never drew me in as much as this game because after every every mission you get a newspaper you get reports you go to the pilot club or I, I, if i remember correctly and you talk to people and they tell you about other uh, ace pilots and mm-hmm. that felt felt very very nice actually yeah Exactly, like a, a living world in in which you're a part of. So, and the campaign is is not is not it's not a fixed campaign. I mean, yeah. you just follow the events of the war uh, loosely, but you actually influence what's happening more or less. Right. That, that's that feels very alive. Huh. That was a conscious design decision done by uh, the designer there in the uh, in the back of the manual. It has designer notes, which is a quite interesting read. And uh, they wanted to make the world seem alive and to tell the story of the war while you're in it. That's really cool. Which includes you going through and becoming an ace, moving up in the leaderboards, and then going out and finding enemy aces and and shooting them down. Yeah, that's excellent. And if you don't do that as well, the uh, the enemy aces will die naturally, as if they had done in that timeline. Right. The game offers five difficulty levels, and in the lowest two, there's no crashing. But surely that means uh, you can still be hit and, and, and die like that, right? It is very hard to die at those lower levels, and, it, and you basically just plow into the ground and then go straight out again at the same speed you went in. Wow. So you can sort of do, almost do cartwheels into the ground. That's insane. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I suppose you played on the on the higher levels mostly. I think earlier on I would have played on three or four. I uh, for this time around I did some time on five. Five uh, still was not overly hard. Hmm. Um, the main thing was was that uh, you needed to be a lot more careful, particularly flying over the front line with in regards to anti aircraft fire from the ground. It seemed to be a lot more accurate. Hmm. But as well uh, with in head-to-heads, and particularly aces, aces are a lot more difficult at high levels. Right, yeah. I think the levels mostly influence the enemy AI. So, yeah, like you said, the, the accuracy and stuff like that makes sense, I suppose, right? I mean, what else can you do? Yeah. Yeah. The um the difficulty also has a chance if you it relates to how, if you survive or not when you crash and based on how you crash. So uh, on lower difficulties, you'll have a higher chance of surviving, uh, being captured or escaping over the lines back to base. Right. Based on where you crash. Ah, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Now I I'm looking at the notes here, David, and I see that you wrote some things down about the flying model. Although I'm not entirely sure what any of this actually means but maybe you can just explain it a little bit so yeah so for those not hugely interested in flying games what 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 i mean is is how the game works in terms of flying Mm -hmm. uh those of you uh, who've played games like x-wing or tie fighter or wing commander or descent space flying games they're very very simple to do you point the plane where you want it to go, engage the engine, and it goes. Right. You go from something like that as a flying game up to the the other end of the spectrum where you have uh, 
people at home play it, flying 737s on six monitors with two <laughs> keyboards, four pedals, you know, and a few joysticks there. That's the other end of, of flying where it's everything's very complicated. And uh, the trick is to find the part in the middle where it's simple enough to be fun but also accurate enough that you f- it feels like there's a challenge. So hmm. when you're flying on Earth, not in space, uh, obviously gravity and lift are important. So stalling your plane, not losing enough speed that you drop out of the sky mm-hmm. is a very important thing. With planes from World War One and World War Two, they had radial engines and that produces uh, torque, not torque. Gosh, no, sorry, I've forgotten the word now. Yeah, they, they, they create torque and they push you in the opposite direction. That's correct, yeah. So it, it is, it's torque and... Um, Normally in a plane, you would be able to adjust, uh, you'd be able to adjust it so it doesn't affect when you're flying, but games do include that in it. In it. And so where Knights of the Sky sits is very nice in that uh, the plane is really only affected by, by, by stalling, by the speed you're going. Um, there is nothing more complicated in it than that. Right. In, in more complicated games, there would be torque, there would be, you, you could damage the surfaces of the plane, in a few other games, you can, you know, your wings might fall off or be damaged and cause you trouble with turning. But, uh, but with Knights of the Sky, the the flight model is quite simple, and it means that most people can pick it up and play it and enjoy it, which I think is the aim of the game, really. Yeah, that's excellent. Mm. Yeah, I think that worked pretty well. I'm not much of a of a flying sim player, but um, I played in level three, I think, and I could just get started. I hopped into the plane and I played, and I shot down my first enemies. So. I think they, they did that quite well, and it still feels like flying. Yeah, I had the same thing, really. Um, I, I haven't managed to play the game a whole lot because I was on holiday for most of June, uh, which was the month that we played this game in. Um, but I did pick it up, and I played the training stuff, and then I tried one of the the dogfights, and I played the first mission of the campaign. And it all it, it, it went much more smooth than I had anticipated because, honestly because of my lack of experience with flight sims, I was really dreading it a bit. I was thinking, oh God, I, I can't fly a plane. I don't know what I'm doing. But actually, there's not that many controls and it's all it works rather straightforward. So yeah, like you said, you can just step in and, and basically just fly off reasonably quickly without too many problems. So that's actually really cool. I think this game has two advantages in that regard in that uh, World War One, the flying was a lot simpler, a lot slower and a lot more basic, but also probably the game being made in 1990 probably put a lot of limitations in what they could put into the game. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they probably couldn't actually model a lot of that as well. No, but that's perfect, although. I mean, I, I have played a lot of racing games, for example, and, uh, well, like you said, on the one hand, there's these ridiculous formula one simulators with tons of settings and you're just it's crazy but on the other end of the spectrum there's stuff like mario kart and and anyone can just jump in and well it's always nice when a game hits a nice balance between those and you can just have fun but also don't feel like it's a kid's game or something so uh yeah i mean i guess that's true for this game as well there's just strikes a nice balance between simulation and well a fun game to play even if you're not an expert and I only play racing games with weapons in them. Yeah, I think that's that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Where are the turtle shells? Where are the turtle shells? Yeah, a friend of mine has the the rule that uh, if you if if breaking is required, then it's a simulation game. It's not for him. It's that's just too much. Just only throttle. The only control allowed. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there's actually quite a lot of planes in this game. I, I looked up a list and I was surprised because I don't really know a whole lot about World War One at all to begin with, to be honest. So honestly, I assumed the Brits had their plane and the French had their plane and the Germans had their plane, but actually they had loads, didn't they? Well, this is still the early days of flight. Uh, they were still working out what you could do with a plane. Uh, at the start of World War One, it was very amusing because quite often uh, you would have a, in a plane you would have two people and the the person at the front would fly the plane, the person at the back would have a pistol oh. and fire at any other planes going along there. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's ridiculous. And they they eventually started throwing grenades at each other and then eventually worked <sighs> out they could mount a gun. Yeah, on top of the plane and then. Uh, you get to where we are now, where uh, guns on planes are quite normal, but it still took them a while to work that out, how best to do it. And then uh, the the different planes, they, I think they differ mostly in the the speed and the height they can achieve. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the engines got better and the, the, pro, the, the aerodynamics of the planes got better, more manoeuvrable, and uh, obviously more, the more manoeuvrable and faster you are, uh, the easier it is to, to knock out the enemy's balloons or scouts or anything like that, and the easier it is to run away, more importantly. Mm, right. So this is all historically accurate then. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the list of planes now. I see, for example, the French planes. There's the, the Airco DH2 and the Newport 11, Newport 17, but also the Spat 7, Spat 13. These are all actual real planes, I assume, from, from the day. That's great. These are all historically right. Fans at home who are fond, who are British and may remember Biggles, there is definitely the sop with camel in there. You can fly. Right. Um, and, of course, everyone knows the Red Baron's plane, the Fokker DR1. Yeah. The Red Triplane, which is lovingly rendered in-game correctly. Yeah, we'll talk about the Red Baron bit next, I think, because, well, this is the Red Baron, isn't it? This this very plane. That's right. Yeah, th- three, three wings. Um, his one was red. They, they weren't all red. Hmm. The Die Fliegertruppe. What? <laughs> Perhaps he says he's he massacres. He massacres a German, the German Air Force name in World War One. Die Fliegertruppe. Okay. Uh, don't worry, Australian here, mate. It's all Australian. <laughs> how how how's it spelled? I, I'm good at pronouncing German. Uh, <laughs> how's it spelled? Flieger and then Truppe. So F L I E G R T R U P P E. Yeah, Fliegertruppe. Okay. Mm. What does it mean? Um, flight battalion, I would say. Okay. So flying group, actually. <laughs> right. So just, yeah, the Air Force, basically. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly enough, it was only the Germans who allowed their aces to paint their planes pretty colors. Huh. It, didn't, it didn't really happen on the Allies' side at all. Okay. Mm. There's a whole bunch of Fokker airplanes on the German side and also a bunch of Albatross-class planes, a D2, a D3, a D5, I see here. That's really the main categories, isn't Yeah. There's also a Halberstadt D2 and a Pfalz D3. What's with the D number? Um, no idea. <laughs> no. It's just, a, it's just a model designation, a slight improvement on it, right. basically. Just increase the number with each... Iteration. Uh, exactly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, that's nice. But all in all, I think this is over 20 planes or something, which is quite a lot 
for for a game from 1990, I think. They were very focused on on the fighter planes here. If you were paying attention in the game uh, to the scout planes, both the ones you protect and the ones on the German side, they're kind of the same model throughout the game. They didn't really bother to incorporate detailed scout models. Right. And there weren't actually any big bomber planes in the game either. So there are there are quite a few particularly on the German side, multiple engine bombers that weren't that aren't in the game, uh, purely for uh, size, I would imagine. Yeah, if they struggled for size, then this is the first thing to go, right? I mean, this is just scenery, basically, the other planes. They wanted to focus on the dogfighting and the aces, so let's just worry about those and then everything else, if we can include it, include it, but otherwise not worry about it. Yeah, but still nice that they managed to get so many different planes in there. And do they also really feel different when you fly? I mean, the specs on these things are quite dramatically different. Looking, for example, at the um, the smallest French airplane, the first one, the Airco, it can only manage to go to 15k feet at uh, 93 miles per hour, while their their best one is able to uh, get to a mighty 135 miles an hour and climb to 22k feet. So that's that's quite a dramatic dr- difference. Do you really notice this when playing? I, I don't think so, really. Uh, with, with, with what the game does in the engine, all you really notice is the speed and the maneuverability of the plane. Mm. Um, if you're getting up to 22,000 feet, uh, I, I would suggest that you're doing something wrong because <laughs> all the other planes are a lot lower. <laughs> yeah, but you need the, the, the manual actually explains that you want your height advantage so that you can come down at a high speed and then go back up where the others cannot reach you. So I think that's actually not, not the worst idea. The the rule I think for the game is if you get around about a bit a bit above cloud level, then you're at a, a good enough height to worry about things and give you enough time to speed down on someone and dive and pick up speed by diving onto them. But uh, I think that's only really two thousand three thousand feet high, not twenty two. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Okay. It possibly I imagine it also takes ages to to get up that high with these kinds of planes because well. They're losing speed as they're going up, don't they? That's right. Luckily, there is time acceleration in the game, which is very useful. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, it would take a little while. Interestingly, the the German planes are all a lot slower than the Allied ones. So does that give them an advantage or...? I think in the, in the middle part of the war, they were more manoeuvrable and they were the first, they were the first to bring out uh, guns that fired through the propeller. Right. So that gave them an advantage early on in the war. The uh, the DR1, the Red Baron's plane, the triplane, that was a lot more manoeuvrable than the other planes as well too at the time. And then the Allies quickly realised that and, and made a triplane of their own. And uh, it's a technology race, very much sort of akin to Formula One, I think. Yeah. Where someone does something new and then everyone else has to follow and chase them. Exactly. Well, that's interesting though. I mean, that's an interesting subject for a game as well. Yeah, pretty cool. Also, I think you have to keep in mind that the weapons are actually the heaviest parts of the plane besides the engine. So, so you can't uh, you can't expect a two weapon plane to be as fast as a one weapon one. Ah, right. Because they're mostly they're mostly made of plywood and and um, canvas, really. So yeah, you can't really make these really heavy, can you? Because then, well, <laughs> they can't really get off the ground and be very good fighter planes. Also, probably because the engines were still very basic. Even, as you said, there's there's a lot of development going on. But I, I imagine, I mean, what is this, 1916, 17, 18, right? So yes, something those, like those engines can't have been really very good compared to, well, 
what is made later. Well, if you're looking at the top speeds, 135 miles per hour for the SPAD 13, I mean, you can do that in your car quite easily if you want, if you were so motivated. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But these engines were probably huge as well. And, and yeah, just less efficient and, and heavy and stuff. So maybe that's also why they only have one and two weapons. I was wondering about that because a modern fighter jet is loaded with weapons, isn't it? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff on there now. They also only have two guns and then lots of, of missiles, right? Hmm. As, as Florian said, it's a weight issue. It, in order, you have, you have to fly all those bullets into the air. Yeah. Maybe it's interesting to talk a little bit about how the game came to be. Uh, and it's, uh, maybe let's start with the Red Baron stuff, because it's, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? There's obviously another game called Red Baron, which is also a World War I flight simulator. And I think this game was also released in 1990, wasn't it? Within months of each other, both of these games were released, and uh, Red Baron was released by Dynamics. Mm-hmm. And they got the pip on the name right. uh, because they, they they put out a press release first, basically saying they were going to release Red Baron. Exactly. And then Microprose had to change their name. Exactly, because they were planning to call their game Red Baron as well. So that's kind of uh, an amazing coincidence. It, it was hanging in the air, apparently, this idea. There was an original Atari arcade game that that was called Red Baron as well. And, I mean, everyone, you, you tell someone about, you ask someone about World War I flying, they're going to think of the Red Baron. It's just such an iconic thing. Yeah. So, yeah, Dynamics got there first uh, through press release, not by actually releasing the game, but just by stating there is going to be a game called Red Baron by us. So then they had to, well, I imagine they just panicked for a bit and then eventually settled on uh, Knights of the Sky. Not the worst title, really. I mean... Kind of cool. Because there was a movie, uh, Knights of the Sky, as well, about World War I, so I think they, they borrowed it from there. Right. So, yeah, this game is not Red Baron, <laughs> but it does fit into a rich history of microprose flight combat simulators. Uh, you already mentioned some, like uh, Silent Surface, uh, but also M- uh, M1 Tank Platoon, F-15 Strike Eagle, Gunship 2000. They made loads of these sort of games, uh, especially early on, but later as well. So, yeah, really all through their heyday, I would say. A lot of these, yeah, originally came out on the Commodore 64 and then were migrated onto DOS as time went on. Yeah. Um yeah, originally Microprose started out with a retired military pilot who met with Sid Meier and they bonded over an Atari arcade game called Red Baron, which was sort of a, a, oh. a, a vector ray-traced flying World War I game, kind of similar to Battlezone if you've played that. But they got together and started Microprose based on that and then obviously with uh, the retired military pilot w- wanting to run things and obviously the military stuff is, a, is an obvious move for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. And they made loads of these games, I remember that. But you mentioned Sid Meier, who was, of course, one of the founders of Microprose. And they made lots of other games as well, also putting his name on them famously. So they would put out these games like uh, Pirates and Civilization and Railroad Tycoon. And they all, they labeled them Sid Meier's Pirates or Sid Meier's Civilization, stuff like that. So they really tried to, yeah, get his name out or something. I don't know, make him sort of a... An auteur-like kind of central figure. I guess it worked out because well, it, it worked. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, totally a, a good strategy. So one of the five game designers I could name without thinking for a long time. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this really clever move of them. But that's what Microprose was famous for. These kind uh, kind of games, and they were really a, a powerhouse at the time, late eighties, early nineties. 
microprose was everywhere. And it's kind of interesting, Florian, that we haven't... We've covered about 30 DOS games now, but we have not covered a lot of microprose yet. No, I, uh, the only thing I can think of is Master for Orion, right? Right. That was published by them. Exactly. Yeah, because they published games as well. They developed their own games, but later they also published other games. Um, famously, they um, they published XCOM, the, the game we're playing right now, this month in August. We're, we're, making, we're making up for it, you mean? Yeah, exactly. And and we're also, we have uh, Pirates planned for September. So, yeah, we are covering a lot of microprose games these, these days. But, I mean, it makes sense because they were this huge company at the time releasing loads of, of games uh, under their name. So, yeah, I would say they're one of the the, the big developers in this in this age. So, yeah, makes sense that we check some of the games out, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, Sid Meier didn't design this game, though. It was designed by Jeff Briggs. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And so he um, he's originally a composer, as it turns out, mm-hmm. and has, has worked in lots of roles in microprose and then eventually uh, made this game. And if you go through, he, he's got his notes in the back of the manual there and he talks about the design philosophy behind what they tried to achieve in the game, focusing on the aces and what they could and couldn't do and then putting together the team. And it's quite a... An interesting read, I think, just from a, a from a design point of view about uh, what their goals were and what they tried to achieve. Yeah, that's really interesting. Maybe it would be interesting to to look this up and maybe post it on the forums or something to share this with other people because it seems like an interesting piece of uh, reading material. I, I, I think it's in PDF form, so I think I'll, I'll might I might do that over the following week. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I'll uh, we'll we'll link to it when this podcast comes out, and then uh, people can check it out because. Yeah, seems kind of cool. It's also kind of crazy this this Jeff Briggs guy. I mean, he's a he's a music composer, but then he turns game designer, and then in the end he he leaves Microprose together with Sid Meier, and they start this new company, Firaxis, and he becomes the CEO. So there's this music composer, game designer, CEO guy now running a multi-million dollar company. And uh, eventually, he sells the company to Take Two Interactive. But even even when he was CEO, he still, for example, composed the music for Civilization Four. So <laughs> it's a really interesting character. Still, still enjoyed doing his old work. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. There's a link actually on on Moby Games where you can check out his uh, his his credits, and it's absolutely a crazy list of games. There's like I don't know, maybe a hundred games on this list. It seems he made music for almost all of Microprose's games uh, that came out between, well, the late 80s and when he left, somewhere in the in the 90s, I think. In 1996, they uh, they founded Firaxis. Yeah, this man has just made music for so many games. It's, uh, yeah, really interesting guy. Yeah, the, the, the game itself is pretty light on music. It doesn't even have uh, Sound Blaster support, hmm. which is a bit, a bit sad, but... Uh... Uh, it, it has a nice little intro jingle and there is a sort of a main menu jingle there as well, which seems very uh, much British, World War One, Yeah. Yeah, pip-pip-pip pip, pip, pip song sort of thing where <laughs> Japanese yeah. excited into the war. Yeah, yes. a marching song to uh, get the spirits up. 
But it's still, it's interesting that the game doesn't have Sound Blaster support because uh, I think the Sound Blaster came out in uh, 88, something like that. 89, I just looked it up. Right. <laughs> Maybe it was released, um, the Sound Blaster was probably released while they work, were working on the game. So yeah. I think maybe it was just not enough time to add Sound Blaster support. No, and it probably wasn't clear from the start as well how big the Sound Blaster was going to be. Yeah. I mean, there were tons of audio interfaces coming out at the time and yeah also the sound blaster is is backwards compatible with the adlib chip and the game does support that so yeah even if you do have a sound blaster card there's still sound coming out of your speakers right uh, i think the game actually sounds pretty good with the adlib sound while it sounds uh well, you should better turn off the sound if you don't have an adlib card for that game <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought the pc speaker sound was horrible yeah in, in comparison in comparison to other pc speaker games that i've tried right yeah uh, it's 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 weird to think now, but actually, sound cards were a bit of a novelty by this time still. So, not not everyone had them. It's yeah, it's kind of weird to think now that people would not have as something as basic as just sound coming out of their speakers. But uh, but you're right. The uh, they they use the Adlib chip pretty pretty well. I mean, it's a, it's a synthesizer chip essentially, but um, they they use it to emulate the engine noise and the machine gun firing and everything. So it, it it works kind of well. It's it's pretty cool. I don't know if Jeff Briggs also did the sound effects and stuff like that. Although maybe he did. I don't know. But uh, yeah, well done. Well done to the team. One last thing maybe to mention is that I found that uh, Jeff Briggs also holds a patent to some weird algorithmic music generation system. And it's used in a 3DO program called CPU Bach, which is a music composing sort of demo thing. It's really bizarre. So yeah, you should totally look that up on YouTube and just be amazed. (laughs) Perhaps he should start up his career again and get into electronic dance music, perhaps. Yeah, totally, totally. Although, I mean, how old is he now? Uh, he perhaps Maybe. he's one of the people in Daft Punk. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> very possible. <laughs> so we we talked about the sound a little bit, but actually I think the interesting part of this game is the graphics, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So what's going on there? <laughs> well, the game is basically flat-shaded 3D polygons. That means um, each polygon um, is rendered in exactly one color. And I, I'm not actually sure if there's actual uh, lighting calculations. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I saw those. I don't remember them. So that that uh, the side of a plane that's that's um, facing the sun would render brighter. I think the game doesn't do that. If I if I'm not mistaken, David. No, there's no uh, no sun effects at all. Yeah, no, everything's just as is. So, but but anyway, I think the game um, it looks really really impressive for the time it was made and for the hardware requirements that it has. I think there are many many polygons on on the screen at at if you're in a um, dogfight with multiple enemies. And one thing that I found particularly um, noteworthy is the horizon, uh, because the horizon line is actually anti-aliased, which helps a lot with um, figuring out how straight you're actually flying. And doing that with the um, 256 colors of the VGA card, uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's actually impressive. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you really need that horizon to work out if you're flying level, particularly if you're advancing time hit, because you don't want to advance time and then just fall into the ground. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if, if you're playing on one of the, I tried the other graphics modes for EGA and CGA, um, and in those modes, it's a, it's a lot harder to keep the plane level because they don't do the anti-aliasing there. Hmm. 
So I, I think it mostly works because the, um, the the sky and the ground always have the exact same color in the game. So they can just um, interpolate between those two colors and have a certain region of the palette reserved for that. Mm-hmm. But it, it was unexpected. I didn't expect to see that. Yeah, that's impressive. Cool. And it, it just looks pretty good. I mean, uh, obviously, it's this old style, no no textures or anything like that. But still, it's bright colors and lots of polygons, lots of things going on. It's yeah. it's At least they, they, they try to emulate some texture with um, polygons. So you have the insignia of the planes. When you get very close, you can see them, and they're just part of the polygons. Hmm. But, uh, well, uh, the resolution is pretty low, obviously, because this is um, for VGA. So it's 320 by 200, I I guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes you have to get really close to other planes to know if this is friend or foe. And several times I (laughs) shut down my my wingman because I thought, hey, come on, you German jerk. But (laughs) probably was just a poor British guy that I Uh. mistook for a German uh, but maybe that was a problem back in the day as well. I don't know. Yeah, I guess, but but the real real eyes have a better resolution, so <laughs> you don't have to get very close until the plane becomes more than three pixels, yeah. <laughs> which which take up half of your screen. It's very awkward at range, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, it, 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 in, unless you use the reverse padlock view to figure out who, who is, which, which plane is what, planes appear sort of as one pixel on the screen. They're sort of three pixels. And if there is a one black pixel in those three pixels, then, then normally you know it's, a it's a German plane. Yep. <laughs> yes. But it's, 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 it's the, the, the colors of those pixels, they may swap a bit, I guess, depending on what face or what side of the plane you're actually seeing at the moment. So <laughs> it can be a bit hard to figure out what the enemy is. But I didn't even think about using a different view to see hmm. um, what I'm looking at. Oh, well. Yeah. Many, many British pilots have lost their life <laughs> thanks to low resolution. <laughs> and the, the drawing distance isn't bad either, is it? No, it's, 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 I think it's, it's nearly infinite. Um, I think they don't actually um, block out stuff that's far away. They just, it just becomes small, right? Yeah, exactly. And unlike Strike Commander, which I think had such a short rendering distance that I, I couldn't really play the game that, that well because you couldn't really get close to your enemies before they shot you down and you didn't see them because there was all this mist mm. or fog. Yeah. So Yeah, I thought it was impressive that you can really see stuff coming at you from a distance instead of it popping in. Yeah. Or yeah. So yeah, cool. They they released the game for DOS, but actually it was also released for the Atari ST and the Amiga. I, yeah, I'm reading here. He said the name. The word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I actually, I think, I think the Amiga version isn't actually better on this one. Uh, I could be wrong, and I would love to hear if someone did play the Amiga version. But I think the fr- the frame rate on that one is a bit lower, so uh, so it's not as good as the DOS version in general. So probably depends on the type of computer you have. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. If, if you run it on an Amiga, uh, on one of the newer Amiga machines, it probably runs faster. Mm, possibly, yeah. The game never really did have a sequel or anything, does it? There was, there was no sequel at the end of the day. Uh, Microprose did a, a second version, and you could uh, write to them directly, and they would send you out a new disc with the new features on it. So they <laughs> included, originally, your plane couldn't get damaged per se. You were either alive or you were shot down. So... In the new version, there was a bit more uh, distinct damage. You could be hit and it said you were only 
lightly hit or something like that, or you could lose the ability to turn in one direction, which makes things very exciting. That, that, that usually means you you can just try to land and that's the end of your mission <laughs> because I never recovered from getting hit in the game. No, ne- ne- never never able to. You always just try and do big, big barrel roll loops to try and work out which way the front was and then just fly that way and hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's cool they, they supplied this patch, though, if you just... You just mailed them a disc, is that it? Just in the post? From from what I read, yeah, they um, you, you could mail in and, and ask for the updated version. That's, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, obviously, this is all pre-internet, so it was really hard, I think, for game developers and publishers to get patches to people. I mean, there was no real mechanism to do this other than, well, this, just send in a floppy in the post and... I, I suppose gaming was also not as uh, mainstream as it is now. I mean, imagine if a publisher now says, just send us something in the post. I mean, if the Fortnite guys do that, then <laughs> they will be sending mail forever. Please, please send us uh, 20 DVD-Rs. <laughs> but yeah, back in the day, this was still a viable uh, way to do it. So yeah, that's nice. Now, David, I, I think you wrote down uh, a thing on a, on a game called The Ancient Art of War in the Skies. What's this then? So that, that's not a, not, a, not a direct sequel, but it is World War I themed. Mm. And it sort of takes on the more a Sid Meier strategy angle of you have sort of the overhead map of the front and you would direct fighter squadrons to go and do things. Right. And then when the fighter squadron got to its target, you would then control that plane in a sort of a side-scrolly action sort of game. Okay. So whilst not a not a simulation flying game, it's World War One themed. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, obviously the, the the big sequels to World War One flying games came on the Red Baron side from Dynamics, not on the Microprose side. Because they did release a Red Baron too. So yeah, so uh, Red Baron came out and was quite popular as well and probably a little bit more popular than Knights of the Sky mm. um, and they released a sequel, Red Baron 2, and this was around the time where 3D graphics cards started to come in mm-hmm. and they updated, they did an update to Red Baron 2 and called it Red Baron 3D oh. and that game is probably uh, one of the better ones to play if you're interested in playing a World War One flying game. Okay, the the 3D one. But not obviously not DOS compatible. Right. Oh, that's a shame. But maybe still runs in all in in Windows because Windows I think is in general pretty good at backwards compatibility, right? It's not bad, but uh it re- needs a joystick. Hmm. Yes. Right. Okay. That's interesting. You also wrote something down about uh what's this the the Il2 Sturmovik? Sturmovik? What's that? So there's from World War One games. There was sort of been a a bit of a blank space. It sort of lost its popularity mm. in the two thousands up until now. Um, and there there is a modern flying game, IL Two Stormovik, which is a World War Two game with uh, Russian planes. Right. And the makers of that were going to do a World War One flying game in a, in a similar vein of, of what they'd already done, but that was eventually cancelled. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a shame. What's also was cancelled was the uh, Sega Genesis version of this game, by the way, of, of Nights in the Sky, I mean. It was apparently supposed to be released on the uh, Sega Genesis or, or Mega Drive, as, it, as it's called here. What's it, what's it called in Australia, actually? Uh, you know, Mega Drive, yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they did plan to release it on that console, but, well, I don't know. I don't know why it was cancelled. I mean, it seems like a capable machine to me, so... 
probably not enough buttons. <laughs> yeah. Although the, the, the Sega does have quite a lot of buttons on the Well, it, yeah. it, had, it originally had only, only three buttons, right? And then the upgrade came with the six-button controller. Oh. But it, it, it lacks an analog controller. And I think the game really, really needs analog input. Mm. Like like David said earlier, when you try it with the keyboard, it's really hard. Mm. And even the mouse is, is very inappropriate. Yeah. So I, I played played most of it on my normal desktop PC with my also with an Xbox Live controller, but uh, it, it got a lot better when I played it on my two eighty six with an actual analog joystick. That made the game like like so much better. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't have one of those. I just have the keyboard. So, yeah, what can I do? You have a trackpad. Yeah, I have a trackpad. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So how was this game received, actually, back in the day? Pretty well, right? So it, it was pretty well, yeah. Mm. So I've, I've linked a, an issue of Computer Gaming World uh, there. They, they reviewed the game Knights of the Sky before Red Baron, and they generally liked Knights of the Sky but before they reviewed Red Baron, but it lost uh, Strategy Game of the Year to Red Baron later that year. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that's too bad. Why do you think that is, though? There are a, a few differences between the games. Uh, Red Baron graphically looks a lot better. Hmm. Um, they use they don't have a fully three D engine. They use a lot of sprites as well. Yeah. So if you compare uh, shooting someone in Knights of the Sky, you have these grey hexagons that come out, which indicate that you've hit them. Whereas Red Baron has actually a nice little explosive sprite. Yeah. Indicating fire and damage and things, and right. uh, the planes are a bit more detailed. And you can also fly on the German side as well too mm. in your campaign. So I think probably all those added up together made a lot of people like Red Baron a little bit more. Yeah. I think it was maybe just a little early for, for real 3D like they tried. I mean, it's, it's a good attempt and it's, it probably pushed the, the technology further. But sprites in those early 90s, they offered a lot more detail, like you said, and a lot yeah, officially just nicer to look at, I think, than these pretty bare polygon models. I remember when I when I streamed it, someone on the stream asked, uh, what were these large grey uh, polygons up in the sky? Are they supposed to be clouds? And, and the answer was, um, yes, actually, they are supposed <laughs> to be clouds. This is large blank things. It's, yeah, exactly. It is of its time, but... Uh, yeah, it's the way it goes. Yeah, with uh, with Red Baron, you could also um, you have wingmen, hmm. which you don't have in Knights of the Sky, and you could actually tell your wingmen to go and do things. That's cool. It's quite nice. Um, obviously, Knights of the Sky, there is there is things always going on. There are other missions going on, other flights, planes all appear randomly. That doesn't happen in Red Baron. Everything's kind of set up at Red Baron at the start of the mission, and that will only happen in the mission what they've set up. Hmm. It sounds like Knights of the Sky is actually technically maybe more impressive, but yeah, maybe it was just too early for this kind of stuff to really be impressive. Probably with the engine and what they did there, and particularly I like with Knights of the Sky is the padlock view. So you could press F2 and it would look from the external of your plane out to where the enemy planes are, so you could find them easily as if you were kind of moving your head around. Oh, yeah. Which is always the hard part of trying to figure out where everything else is when, you, when you're when you stuck looking straight ahead and you can't literally move your head as if you were driving a car or something like that. 
mm-hmm. and you could press Shift F2 to get a reverse padlock view to actually see what those planes were as opposed to looking at the individual pixels. Yeah. And you, you couldn't do that in Red Baron. You could actually, Red Baron, you could actually scroll the camera all around the plane, almost 360, I believe, mm-hmm. which made it look a lot nicer, but you, you had trouble figuring out where other planes were. So maybe in the end, this game is the one that holds up a little better, or is that too strong of a... Well, I, th- I think mainly it comes down to which game you played first. <laughs> yeah, which you have the nostalgia for, um, yeah. Well, I, I played Red Baron first, but I forgot all about it, so what about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh well. But you, you still enjoyed Knights of the Sky, though, didn't you, Florian? I oh, yeah, mean, I, t- I remember you saying you really liked this one. I totally did. Uh, sadly, I didn't have as much time for playing, playing it as I would have liked to, but um, the few hours that I could put in, into the game were really, really good. So uh, after I learned how to get the plane off the ground, actually, that, <laughs> that became a really fun game. Yeah. That, that's the first major difficulty spike, figuring out you have to turn the engine on with the O key. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but that's classic flight sim stuff, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's always... You have to put the engine to full thrust and then just wait for a long time until you get enough speed to actually take off. Yeah. And I, I never did that. I just wanted to just go. take off the way I learned <laughs> in in uh, modern plane simulators. Like, yeah. just full throttle, go for three seconds and pull the stick back. That doesn't work in this game. <laughs> Well, but that that also just adds to the simulating side of things, I think. So, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, of course. You you quickly mentioned that it's available on on both Steam and GOG, right? Right. Uh so yeah, if if people want to check it out, then it's not it's not very hard to uh to get this game nowadays. I know, not not expensive, I think, right? I don't remember the actual price, but let me check for a second. No, but they're usually not very expensive yeah. these old ones. Yeah. It's several dollars, I think, at the moment. It's on sale, I think, and it goes up to about seven dollars, not on sale. Right? Yeah. Well, that's that's all right. Yeah. I, I remember buying it for like two and a half euros or something like that. Yeah, that's probably on the sale. Yeah. Maybe this is also one of those games that's almost always on sale because it's not really a big IP or anything. So, I mean, they're lucky if they if they sell one of these, right? So, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Is it also available uh, on, on, on eBay, stuff like that? Probably is. Um, I actually didn't check. Oh. But let's, let's fix that. Well, you're the big box collector guy, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not so much into collecting at the moment because of space issues. Ah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there, there are quite a few versions. So they're not actually that expensive, like um, 40 euros, or that's roughly the same in dollars, I guess, um, for a big box PC release. Hmm. Amiga releases are cheaper, for, for interestingly okay they're usually more expensive yeah maybe because it's inferior <laughs> <laughs> well it, it seems to be an afterthought actually the amiga and the atari st versions hmm. um the one review that i read from a german magazine said that the amiga and atari st versions weren't even planned at the time that they reviewed the dos version of the game huh. 1990 the year of the pc finally <laughs> Well, it, I think these are the um, the years that that things are starting to switch around. I mean, the late eighties, uh, the 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 Amiga and the home computers were still very much had the upper hand still. But I think in the nineties, things slowly turned around, and and um, actually the sound card stuff that we talked about earlier very much helped with that. Also, the VGA stuff coming out, becoming more mainstream, and yeah, I think from nineteen ninety onwards, things shifted more uh, to the advantage of the PC. 
And also, of course, the Amiga didn't really get all the updates that maybe it should have had to stay relevant and well. Well, it was updated for quite a while, but it also got more expensive, which um, killed one of the main selling points of the Amiga, I think. Yeah. It was really, really, um, it was cheap, yes. Mm, (laughs) Affordable, that's the word I was looking for. (laughs) Of course, Amigas are not cheap. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, PCs definitely weren't cheap. I mean, uh, yeah. That was crazy. My dad still thinks that if 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 you buy a computer and it's less than five thousand euros, it it must be rubbish. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it was. <laughs> that's at least a million Aussie dollars, I'm sure. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a bit. Have you played it? I mean, you mentioned that you streamed this game uh, relatively recently, David. Yeah, I, I thought I, I'd, I'd give it a go. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, my dedication to streaming has been a bit up and down. I've, I've had a few other things going on. Uh, mm. And it's not necessarily, I mean, I mean, you try and stretch out 320 by 200 to a, a proper widescreen <laughs> resolution. and it, <laughs> Yeah. It, does, it doesn't look so crash hot. But um, No. But what did you think? I mean, was it a long time ago since you had played it previously? Or do you go back to it from time to time anyway? No, it had been a while. I had to go and set it up in DOSBox for, specifically for this um, and unzip it from my old games folder. Mm-hmm. It hasn't aged well, I think, in my opinion. Um, it, it, it's a game of its time. And if you if you enjoy the what we would now call a roguelike, essentially, where the missions are random and the world changes as you as you move along in it, then you can have a lot of fun with this sort of thing. It's not overly hard. I mean, I think I ended up shooting down at least five planes per mission uh, without really being challenged. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't realistic in that sort of sense. And uh, calling the, the, the flight itself a simulation is not quite right. It's quite straightforward and easy to do. So it, it, um, if, if you enjoy it, it's definitely something to give it a go. To give it a go. I, would, I would recommend it. If you're looking for a more modern one, I would possibly say, point you in the direction of Red Baron 3D. Mm. Uh, that you, where you can have fun there and actually rip wings off aircraft by diving and going too fast. <laughs> That's always awkward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you kind of need those, don't you? <laughs> yeah, you get back to the mechanic and say, sorry, yes, this front wing is somewhere over Lily. Yeah, <laughs> I, I left it there in a dogfight. But uh, it's, uh, it's a game of its time. And if, uh, as I say, I, I recommend this over Red Baron, probably because I played Knights of the Sky first. Mm-hmm. I'm biased. Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, I had never heard of this game. And I was actually kind of impressed with, uh, well, it's, it's, it's sort of advanced in a way, but it's still very playable and you can pick it up relatively easily. And uh, yeah, I thought it, it looked, well, it's, it's hard to really say that it looks great, but it still looked kind of cool. So yeah, I was pleasantly surprised, to be honest. And well, I'm not a massive flight sim fan at all, but... Well, as far as they go, this one, definitely not one of the worst I played. So, yeah. And I imagine if you are really into this sort of stuff, then it's really interesting to check out. Because, uh, well, if you if you want to know the roots of these sorts of games, then this is a really interesting one, I think. So, uh, yeah. Everyone can jump in and play it. There's no barrier to entry, really, apart from having a controller, pretty much. Because uh, I, I mean, I, I, other people may have had problems with, might not have problems with the keyboard like I did, but uh, it's definitely best experience with at least some sort of analog stick. As is often the case with these flight sims, right? Very much so. Yeah, pretty. There's 
even even the space flight sims, uh, the only ones you can control with a mouse is something like Descent. Yeah, which is maybe even more of a first-person shooter than a real flying game, in a way. Mm. What did you think, Florian? Uh, yeah, I think I already mentioned that I really liked the game. Um, I like mm-hmm. the graphics. They are, I think they are um, really, really cool for 1990. Um, we discussed later games that don't have uh, uh, anything near, uh, coming close to that, right? Mm-hmm. So we were talking about uh, Commander Keen, for example, and yeah. how um, the, the scrolling was, was super uh, modern and all of that. But this game actually has half the screen, half the screen um, of, of full 3D polygons and ground, and yeah. everything changes in a single frame. So that's actually quite impressive. And way more colors as well. Oh, is it? No, they're both VGA games, aren't they? No, oh, no, no, uh, not the, not the, not the first three exactly. Keen games, right? Keen is only sixteen colors. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think well, um, for Knights of the Sky, only they only render half of the screen because the bottom half is the static cockpit view. But anyway, I, I thought it was quite impressive, and the game is actually really playable nowadays. Yeah, so great suggestion, actually, David. Thanks a lot because. Uh, well, this is the sort of stuff that we're after. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's always so difficult to to get a good mix of there's the the, the famous classics and the the games everyone remembers, but well, we we don't run really just only play those. We we're really looking for games like this one, like the hidden gems, the more obscure, unknown stuff. That's uh, that's actually pretty good as well. So uh, yeah, I think this is an excellent choice. Oh, thank you very much for picking it, and thank you for having me on. I hope to see you uh, in the future as well. You're 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 free to join any time, of course. And uh, it's always great to have these new people on as well. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm surprised anyone listens to this in the first place. But then to have people actually joining, that's just yeah, super awesome. <laughs> Turns out there are lots of DOS fans all over the globe. Who would have thought? Yep. It's um, really cool. Three three continents ticked off, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. O- only four to go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, well, we do have members in uh, South America, at least, I know. Yeah. It would be interesting to have someone from, from Asia, uh, yeah. although I don't know how popular DOS was actually back in those days. But yeah, would would be interesting, definitely. So I, I think that's Knights of the Sky, unless someone has something to add or something that we forgot or anything. I don't know. I don't think so. David? No, it's um, it, it's it's a fun game. Uh, have fun shooting down the Red Baron, mm-hmm. as you do. Um, well, well, there's one thing that I wanted to mention. Um, you get those those um, one-on-one matches against um, a, a, a German aces during the game. Mm-hmm. You get invited to a to a duel, mm-hmm. and actually, I the first three or four of them, I never managed to find <laughs> my opponent. Isn't it just a matter of flying straight, and then eventually you'll get to them or yeah I, I don't know and it was really hard to distinguish them from the actual enemies at least for mm. me maybe i'm just stupid <laughs> not quite no it's it's in theory if they challenge you they should appear somewhere near your base but if you go and challenge them you have to go and look at the intelligence you've been given in the news and at the the officers club and try and work out where their base is and go and fly to their base i see because when when i got challenged i I looked at my map and it got, got gave me a waypoint like half the way across the map. So I thought I'd go there, <laughs> but yeah, well, oh well, whatever. And sometimes the enemy aces are rude and they'll bring along friends as well. Ah, that's that's very unsportsmanlike. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah. Ah well, 
War never changes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I suppose that's Knights of the Sky then. We played this in June, right? Right. So what was our July's game? In July, we played Theme Hospital, which most people like, seem to enjoy. Some people more than others. Definitely. So the next one will be about that. Good game. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we will actually start recording that episode once this one is uploaded because yeah, we the month to... is over, obviously, by now. So Yeah, we have to catch up a little bit. But uh, yeah. yeah, Theme Hospital is up next. And then... It's August now, and we're playing uh, UFO Enemy Unknown, also known as XCOM. UFO Defense, yep. Yeah, exactly. Which is the first XCOM in a long series, of course. Uh, also published by Microprose, and it's it's really awesome. I mean, I'm I'm slightly tired right now, and that's because I was playing XCOM yesterday, and then all of a sudden it was 4 a.m. I don't know what happened. It's one of those <laughs> games that does it to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's yeah, just just one more turn, one more turn. Exactly, and it's it's really cool. Uh, we'll talk more about it definitely, but it's 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 awesome, really. It's it's a great game. In September, we have Sid Meier's Pirates lined up. Because uh, another Microprose game, by the way. <laughs> another Microprose game. So yeah, we, so we are really catching up on our Microprose. <laughs> yeah, burning through all of their the whole collection, just getting getting it over with <laughs> once and uh, for all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's what we've got lined up. Actually, we also have October's game already. Yeah, because that's spooky month, right? Exactly. That's the spooky Halloween month. So we we uh, went through the suggestion forum looking for spooky games. And we found that someone had suggested the seventh guest. So uh, we thought that might be appropriate. It's, uh, it's an FMV game, isn't it? A full motion video. It's one of those early CD-ROM games that's full of video clips, uh, which was... Well, a sort of a niche genre at the time, but also weirdly popular, I think. <laughs> at so, the time, uh, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the whole full motion video game genre, I'm not sure if it exists today. Uh, and if it does, there are not a lot of releases in that genre, are there? So, No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, should be interesting. Oh, well, maybe out. maybe stuff like like um, Netflix with their Bandersnatch, maybe they're... Yeah, maybe there's some time for interactive uh, movies. Maybe it has finally come. Maybe it will make a huge comeback. Who knows? Let's bring back Gabriel Knight. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. But mm. this is this is also in that era, I think, of the uh, mid '90s, maybe even early '90s. I'm not sure actually what year this was released, but it's yeah, one of the older. I assume we'll we'll find out in October. Well, definitely. Yeah, and it's a long way, so we'll get there. So, yeah, that's what's coming up the the coming months. If you like this DOS stuff, then you can join us over at dosgameclub.com and you can also leave your game suggestions there like David did. So, uh, yeah, if you do that, then maybe we'll pick it and then maybe we'll even invite you to the show. So that's cool. You can also chat with us on IRC. We have a channel called DOS Game Club uh, over on Afternet. Which is another nice way to get invited to the show, by the way. Yeah, totally. So if you just hang out too much with us and talk oh, yeah. and discuss a game too much, you will definitely be invited. 100%. If Because you... we crave for new people. Well, yeah, it's not that we're we're tired of the old people. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always nice to have just new members and see how things are happening. So yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, we also have a Twitter account, which is called DOS Game Club as well. So you can follow us over there and see what we're up to 
And um, finally, if you're listening to this in a podcast app, then it's really appreciated if you uh, rate our show because that helps to get the word out. And we also just like the feedback. So, yeah, if you could do that, that is hugely appreciated. Yeah, I think that's it. So thanks a lot, guys. And uh, awesome, awesome game. And uh, thanks for, for talking about it. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, it's almost dawn here in Australia. I'll go start to herd up the kangaroos. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry for getting you up this this terrible hour. But <laughs> very uh, cool of you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Ah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks, and then uh, see you around. See ya. See you around. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs>